What up all you beautiful Misfits and Rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 122 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Leslie Arnold. Leslie is another friend of mine from the Get Shit Done Retreat I did in Thailand. She was somebody who really helped me with my own online business and somebody who I had a lot in common with. She lives in a small village in Vietnam called Phong Nha. And through our talkings in Thailand, she suggested that I come out, um, check out her little town, maybe interview some of her friends out in Phong Nha. To which, fast forward a few months after this interview was done, I did go to Feng Yao. So a lot of the future episodes will be with some really cool expats, expats that I can really relate to personality-wise because of the expats that I relate with in Nicaragua. It's a really cool bunch of people, people that are really just doing life in the way they want to do life, as is Leslie Arnold. Leslie is an online business manager, so she makes all of her money helping individuals around the world build their business, streamline their business, and make their overall business a lot stronger. She also has a really cool bar called the Bomb Crater Bar with her husband, Mark in Fong Ya, which as the name of it describes, is a bar that has a lot of bomb craters within the seating area where the bar is built. Because Fong Ya was one of the heaviest bombed places in Vietnam during the Vietnam War, so there's bomb craters all over the place. And they're still finding ammunitions that have not been exploded yet. So Leslie is a really neat lady. Her life has been really interesting, and she continues to design it in the way she wants by living in a really cool village, uh, making very good money by being an online business manager, and just doing things on her own terms. If this is your first time listening to Mr. Rejects, please pull out your phone and hit the subscribe button. If you like this episode, I would really appreciate it if you rated it and commented on it. It really helps me in the ratings on iTunes. I also have some really rad misfits and rejects t-shirts you can head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and pick one up they're super comfortable and it would mean the world to me if you rep the misfits and rejects message so with that said please sit back relax and enjoy this episode with leslie arnold welcome to misfits and rejects a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates travelers entrepreneurs and adventurers i'm your host chapin cruder enjoy i didn't fit in america with cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I have Leslie Arnold joining me. She was in the Get Shit Done retreat I did here in Thailand, somebody I was in a group with, somebody I really appreciated her input on my own business. What she does online is she does online business management, and she does that from a really cool small little village called Phong Nha in Vietnam. She's been there five years, and I thought it'd be a really cool opportunity to bring her on share her story because she's had a lot of twists and turns in life. She's taken a lot of steps out into unfamiliar territory and had some pretty big life changes over the time in which she's done it. So with that said, Leslie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chapin. Yeah, it's nice to have you. Good to hear your voice. We spent a few weeks together, got to know each other, and then you flew off back to Vietnam, which I do hope to come visit you sometime soon, but it's nice to hear your voice again. Yeah, looking forward to uh, buying you a beer at the Bomb Crater Bar. I know. Yeah, you have a cool bar. I've seen photos of it. Leslie was nice enough um, to introduce me to Dave, who was in the last episode, um, another fellow expat in your little town who owns a pizza parlor, and you own a bar called Bomb Crater Bar. Can you tell us a little bit about that to start? Yeah, um, we we came across this little piece of land with some friends of ours, and um, they they said that they'd like to make a coffee shop there, and would we help them? 
Um, You're like, absolutely not. Let's be alcoholics and make a bar. <laughs> absolutely. I was like, as long as this coffee shop can sell beer, count me in. And it's this beautiful little spot right on the river. Um, it's got loads and loads of really massive bamboo. And so we chucked in some little Vietnamese traditional houses, um, so tiled roofs and wooden poles. And, um, yeah, it's just a really chilled place to drink a beer, have a swim in the river, watch the sunset in the summer. It's, it's, and, you know, in contrast to a lot of places in Vietnam, which are really trying to be as modern as possible and lots of neon lights and signs and loud music, we're trying to keep it really supernatural and really chilled. Yeah, because pre-show you were describing the town you live in as like pretty much one of the poorest towns or was one of the poorest towns in Vietnam until they found, what you describe, the world's largest cave? Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, following the, the Vietnam War, um, a lot of places were very impoverished. Um, where we are here is about 40 kilometers um, from the coast and from the town of Dong Hoi. Um, and, you know, if you go back to the late 90s, when they started exploring the caves here, um, the guys have told me that it used to take them about six hours to get from here to Dong Hoi, which we jump on a motorbike now and do in 40 minutes. Um, because of that, you know, there wasn't trade, there wasn't any medical care. People were very much just subsistence farming and trading and trying to stay alive. Um, and when tourism started in the late 90s, Things started to get better slowly, but in the last five years or so, it's just absolutely blown up. And the like people, the local, the lives of the local people have just changed immensely. You were saying that was one of the big things that attracted you to this spot because you were one of the first people to take a tour of this cave, I believe you said, and you fell in love with the town and the people, and you also saw the opportunity in the sense that. You knew this was going to blow up. This was going to attract a lot of tourism, and you thought that it would be an opportunity for you to, you know, cut ties with the Western world a little bit, and also have a positive influence on an ever-changing environment. Can you talk us through that decision and, and what that was like for you and your husband to make? Yeah, um, you know, I'd, I'd been traveling for a year. By the time I got to Fongnya, it was supposed to be the end of a year of travels, um, and we were going to go back to Australia and. The plan for me was to get a job as a management consultant. Um, and the company that both my husband and I had been working for had been sold. And things, a lot of things were going to have to change in Australia. I mean, we, we hadn't been living together prior to my going away for a year. And we were going to find a place together. And everything in Australia was going to change. And we came here and realized that if we were going to make some big changes in our life, well, why stop at the small ones? Why not make some really big changes and see if living in Vietnam would suit us? So we decided to stay for six months. Um, and, you know, the attraction really was beautiful place, amazing people, super friendly. Um, it was the New Year when we were here. Um, the Vietnamese celebrate New Year around the same time as the Chinese celebrate Lunar New Year. Um, in Vietnam, it's called Tet. And it's really about people coming home to their home villages um, to be with their families. Uh, when we arrived, um, it was just before Tet, and the local people really knew that the opening of this, the biggest cave in the world, Hang Son Dong, here in the National Park, that that was going to be a really big thing for people becoming 
more affluent in the area was going to change their lives basically. And um, we were the first people. And so we kind of represented this to them. And the Vietnamese tradition is that the, the people who visit your house on the first day of the new year, on the first day of Tet, sets the pattern for the luck for the rest of the year. And um, at that point, with Phong Nha being not very affluent and, and Westerners being seen as like really rich people um, and really lucky, everyone wanted us to come around and drink some rice wine, some local moonshine, and uh, sit on the floor on a grass mat and basically get drunk. Um, it was The hospitality was incredible. The people were amazing. Um, we really loved the, the, the Vietnamese family culture as well. There's such a strong sense of community here. And I think so many places in the Western world, um, we really lack that sense of community. I lived in an apartment block in Sydney for eight years. I didn't even know all my neighbors. Um, so, yeah, an amazing opportunity to come here, live in a community, in a really, really beautiful landscape, in a rural place, but a place that was really exciting, um, that was going to really undergo a lot of change and um, something that perhaps we could help with. How did you structure that departure from Australia? Did you research um, visas or did you just go into it? Did you sell everything and leave? Like, how did that transition happen? Um, <laughs> it wasn't as hard as it might have been. Um, having been on the road for a year already, um, I had I'd subleased my apartment. So there were other people living there using my furniture and stuff. So I didn't have to worry about that. I basically just extended my year's travels for six months. Um, my husband was living in a, in a room, a rented room in a really funky suburb of Sydney called Newtown having, you know, he lived with his, with his family for 20 odd years and he, he'd only been living on his own for a couple of years. So it was really easy for him to just put some stuff back in storage in the family house and, and move on. Job-wise, I hadn't worked for a year, and um, the company that Mark was working for was being sold, so he was quite happy to to leave. Um, both of us actually got pretty good severance packages, redundancies, so that helped a lot. In terms of visas for Vietnam, we just basically turned up and had um, tourist visas. Then as we had opportunities open up here, we got onto more long-term visas, but, you know, it's just a case of get out there and just do what you what you can and tourist visas is what were available to us at that point. That's really cool. And I like how the Vietnamese perceive us as lucky, you know, and want us to be a part of that New Year celebration to hopefully set the trend of luck. And I think a lot of us take it for granted and, and forget that we are tremendously lucky to have grown up with the opportunities that we have. I mean, I, I do think that a lot of impoverished places have opportunities that they don't necessarily take advantage of, but it's because of lack of education and stuff like that. But it's really cool to hear and, and hear you describe it in that way as us being perceived as lucky because I think, again, like we are tremendously lucky to live how we have lived and have the opportunities that we have. Do you think that you know where you are and the impact you've had on the people that you're surrounded by has kind of perpetuated that luck? that they had hosted you for, you know, that first kind of tet that you sat in their living room and drank Weiss wine? It's, um, it's very, it's very hard to say. I mean, I, I was, by the time I moved to Fong Nha, there were other people who were already making a huge impact here. 
um, the first um, hotel for Westerners opened in about 2010. So that was um, like a couple of years before we got here. Um, and they really did, uh, they did so much hard work um, out of the Fong Niao Farms Day to really promote tourism, to get the Lonely Planet here, to get the word out. And then uh, the trekking company who have um, been running these tours into the biggest cave in the world, they did a huge amount of work as well, um, you know, having National Geographic here and things like that. So by the time I arrived, like, I was definitely, like, second wave pioneer. Um, we haven't done anything huge or drastic, but we just try as hard as we can to support as many people as we can. Um, and, you know, I think to go to, to just circle back to what you were saying before, sometimes we just really don't appreciate how lucky we are to have had the education that we've had, to have grown up in a first world country, to have been exposed to the things we've been exposed to. And just knowing what I know just from having been alive, if you take away, you know, any special education or things like that, just being able to pass on the simplest things can really make a big difference. You know, you can't, it's impossible to quantify the difference that we've had here. It could be very small, it could be very big, and, we, you know, we may never know. So the changes that you have seen since you've been there, have they occurred as quickly as you thought they would occur? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's now been five years. When we came here, there were a couple of hotels in town, um, maybe, well, uh, eight or nine, it's probably a hundred now. There's a huge amount of accommodation available in this area. Um, there was one company that you could take tours with into the caves. Now there's three. And um, we've now got the biggest cave in the world, the third biggest cave in the world, which is Hang In, um, and the fourth biggest cave in the world, which is um, Pygmy Cave. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's just blowing up. Has, has the government built a lot of infrastructure or is this primarily private, the private sector who's built all this infrastructure and brought everything in? Yeah, I mean, there, there has been a lot of improvement in the infrastructure. Um, a couple of years ago, we were really struggling because there wasn't enough electricity. We lived um, on the edge of town, on the far edge of town, and, you know, some nights we'd struggle to turn the light bulbs on because there wasn't enough power. But um, the, the, the government's done a lot of, put a lot of work in, put a lot of effort in. All the power's been upgraded. The roads are looked after. Um, it's all good. That's interesting and cool because a lot of the promises that were made originally in Nicaragua that a lot of investors signed up for, and the, the government was talking about a coastal road, so a lot of people who were investing saw dollar signs and that, you know, oh, they'd be bringing way more traffic out here, and I'll be able to make all my money back way quicker. And, I mean, the coastal road's still not really done. <laughs> like, it's been almost 15 years. And um, so I think a lot of people can easily see the opportunity like you did and then invest not really realizing that these kind of governments are usually very corrupt and very slow moving and those types of returns don't come as fast as most people hope but it sounds like you guys haven't seen that at all you know i think um we've, we've never really invested very heavily here so we're not we're not really playing with the big boys um that what goes on within the high echelons of the Vietnamese government is not something that I'm really party to. What I do see like in the news media and things here is that the government is, is getting really, really strict on corruption. 
um, which I feel really positive about, that governments like this um, traditionally um, in many, many countries in the world, it's just part of the makeup. Um, and, you know, I also think that, you know, one of the things about a lot of third world countries' governments is that they don't hide the corruption as well as the first world governments do. And you can't, no one can deny that there's a huge amount of corruption in the governments in Australia and in the US. It's just not something that the man on the street sees every day. Um, whereas here, it's, it's just more overt. But the big, the big corruption is getting stamped out. And I'm, I'm really, that makes me really positive about the future of Vietnam, that they're, they're tackling the hard things. So, yeah, you have your little bar, the Bomb Crater Bar, which sounds like a lovely spot. But you make most of your money online as a business manager. So you have clients around the world that you do what for? Yeah. Um, when, I, when I first um, came to Vietnam, I was managing a hotel here. And um, that was great. But hospitality was not something that I'd wanted to do my whole life. And, you know, having to, having to be there every day wore thin after a few years. It was super exciting in the beginning, but it just started to be, it just, I started to realize that it wasn't what I was passionate about anymore. Um, so I decided that I'd do some work online. Um, and, you know, working for people in, in the West and living in the East means that you don't have to work that hard. You don't have to hustle that hard. So I, I started it just basically to replace my income that I that I'm making as a hotel manager. And um, as you know, as I progressed, more and more opportunities opened up. And so you know, from the first jobs of you know transcribing radio interviews for a journalist in Australia, or um, updating someone's Wikipedia profile, um, it's come a long way since then. And I now really help. Uh, entrepreneurs to manage and grow their businesses. So um, I work with um, one of the original digital nomads. Uh, Esther Jacobs was a, she was a nomad before it was digital. Um, and um, working with a really amazing uh, lady by the name of uh, Willow Sana. She's a transformational business coach. Um, and I also work for a consulting company in Australia, which is, I do more sort of project management for them, um, which is, based around what I used to do when I was living in Australia. There's a lot of synergies and a lot of that crossover from my old project management life in Australia and, and the work that I do um, with 28 Across. So this online, these online skills that you had, were you self-taught? Did you take courses? Like how do, you, how, do you, how do you know how to navigate through the different things that you do for these people? Honestly, seat of the pants. I work it out as I go along. Um, but every opportunity that I have has, has taught me things that have helped me in the next step. Um, you know, I stepped out of my comfort zone a few times. And I think if anybody wants to get into like freelancing and working online, um, the first thing to do is just get out there and try it on short-term contracts. I now work with people um, on an ongoing basis. I don't take um, like short projects. But the first things that I did were, hey, can you update my Wikipedia page and I'll pay you 15 bucks? Um, can, you, can you put some images on my website and I'll pay you 15 bucks? But every time I did something like that, I'd learn about a different type of website or um, I'd figure out something that I didn't know before. 
Um, and so also over time, I've been able to go, instead of doing, you know, three hours work for $15, it's, it's got a lot better and a lot easier. I've got ongoing clients. I don't have to spend time trying to find clients. Um, it means, you know, I can get more done, make more money, and also have a lot more time to, you know, relax, chill, and enjoy the lifestyle. And yeah, the money that you're making in Vietnam goes a lot farther than the money if you were back in Australia. So that's always a bonus for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky that um, we've got such a strong community around us here. I could go to the market and buy all my vegetables and stuff super cheap, but my lovely assistant Trang does that for me. So yeah, we can buy a week's groceries for, I don't know, 20 bucks. That's cool. Um, I'd like to segue into you know some of these beautiful ladies that you work with because I know they are doing some really interesting things. And you're participating in Willow, who is on the show, actually her light map program for female entrepreneurs. Can you talk about that and how it's changed and affected your entrepreneur spirit, entrepreneurial entrepreneurial spirit, and just where your head's at right now within your own endeavors? Yeah, it's it's been really really inspiring um, to to be working with people who have these incredible lifestyles, uh, location independent, successful, um, and changing other people's lives in the process. So um, both Esther and Willow um, really have this mission to help other people to get to where they are. Um, so Esther really um, does a lot of work around being location independent. She teaches courses about how to be a digital nomad. You know, she's got a program called One Year to Freedom, um, which is about, you know, helping people get out of where they are and to where they want to be. And with Willow, what, what Willow does in the LightMap program is really about helping female entrepreneurs to up-level their businesses. She works with people who are already entrepreneurs um, and they don't have to be location independent with Willow. I mean, she works with people who have brick and mortar businesses as well as the location independent people, but really about service businesses, people who are heart-centered entrepreneurs, people who help other people. Um, but it's really, it's really great to, because for women, I think for a man, if you, if you give a man a job description and there's 10 things on that he, 10 skills or 10 bits of experience that a man should have, he'd be like, yeah, I got four of them. I'm applying. Hell yeah. But if you gave the same list to a woman, if she had like eight of ten, out of those 10 skills, that woman would be like, oh, yeah, I'm not quite sure if I'm good enough for this job. So it's really, really amazing to see other women helping women entrepreneurs succeed in a world where men with their masculine energy will just get in there and do it anyway. And for women, well, we operate a bit differently. You know, it's not all just about the, the hustle and, and the getting out there. It's, it's more subtle and it, it's really beautiful to, to watch these women really emerge into being super successful. That's great. What, what, what's one thing you've taken thus far from these women that you work with, maybe this light map program that you're going through with Willow that you're applying in your everyday right now? with your own entrepreneurial endeavors? I think the, the biggest thing for me right now is just really being super conscious about the value of my time and, and my energy. 
that um, being conscious about what you're doing and how it impacts your life and your business and making sure for me that I'm not wasting time doing things I don't want to do or um, helping people for free when it's taking away from my business. I mean, one of the reasons that I want to have this flexibility is so that I can have more time to help the people in the local community here. It's a big part of why I want to live here and why I want the independence. But just making, being conscious about how you spend your time, how you spend your energy, and making sure that you're doing what you want to do. That's the big thing for me. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. They are lovely ladies. I met both of them, and they're both very interesting, powerful women doing some cool stuff for other beautiful women out there. Um, you've had a really interesting life prior to your present moment life. Can you talk about you were born in the UK, but you grew up in South Africa where you finished your university during apartheid, and then you spent some time in Australia. you mind taking us through like childhood and what it was like for you and maybe some of the things that stay with you to this day and maybe – motivate you to keep moving forward? Yeah. Um, I suppose one of the things is that, you know, I became, I became an expat at three months old. My parents moved to South Africa in 1975, which, you know, as we said, was like apartheid was at its peak at that point. Um, you know, um, I, I've always, I've never really asked my parents, you know, why the motivation to move to South Africa, but I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that my father just finished his PhD in chemical engineering and he had the opportunity to do more, um, to be more important, to be a, a, a small fish in a small pond rather than a small fish in a big pond. And, and he was always an adventurer as well, you know, wanted to try different things. So my parents moved to South Africa uh, in 1975. Um, I was born in the UK almost completely by accident just because my parents were actually taking another contract in, contract in France at that point. And um, so, yeah, I was born near my grandparents' house. But, yeah, growing up in South Africa was idyllic. Um, you know, we had these big houses with, like, on big properties. We had stuff. Um, you know, I, I didn't make my bed as a kid, um, didn't wash dishes. The house was always immaculate, spotless. Um, we were always really well cared for and, and, and loved um, we had these huge gardens, we had jungle gyms and swimming pools, and it, w it was just an idyllic life. Um, I never realized um, until much later that there was so much wrong with that country. I think any time you grow up somewhere, it is your life, and you don't know that there could be something fundamentally wrong with it. But yeah, when I was I was finishing high school when apartheid ended and voted in the first democratic elections in South Africa – um, and I, I think since then, it's, it's been a very interesting process for South Africa. I think it still is a very interesting process for South Africa. Um, there's a lot of infrastructure that's not what it used to be and a lot of affirmative action, you know, the, the, reverse, the reverse racism, the let's try and make things right after the, the black majority population of the, company, of the country were marginalized for so long. Um, but my parents still live in South Africa. They're still really happy there. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful country. Um, but yeah, when I finished university, um, can I just ask you one thing? Can I ask you one thing before you go on, you know, with, with apartheid, um, and everything changing when apartheid stopped how'd that affect your life? Did you lose everything or did your life just continue on as normal? 
Not at all. Um, life continued on as normal. Um, I finished university. Um, one of the things that did change was that um, people with fair skin found it a whole lot more difficult to become gainfully employed. Um, there was a lot of structure around trying to make up for the years of marginalization. And so affirmative action, um, they even had quotas of how many black people needed to be employed in, in, in your company. Um, there were quotas in the sports teams. And so it just, you know, wasn't the right time to be, if, if you were a white person in South Africa, you really had to be exceptional. You know, if you'd studied accounting or been a doctor, I think things wouldn't have been a problem. But I studied marine biology. I had this pipe dream about being a marine biologist. Um, and there just wasn't a job there for me. So I went off traveling. What did you do? Um, I didn't have much money, finished university. And uh, so I, I got an au pair job in the Channel Islands. The Channel Islands are halfway between England and France. There's three small little islands. Um, Guernsey, Jersey are the big one, and Alderney is the little one. Um, but being this little island that's a protectorate of the UK, they're a tax haven. And so I, I was working for a, a couple there, had a few kids, um, helping look after the kids and helping their grandmother run a bed and breakfast. Um, it didn't work out. I did a couple of months and just wasn't for me. But I landed up staying on the island and working in a hotel for a few months. And it, I, I was running the bar in this little hotel right on the harbour in Alderney. And uh, these guys had a ship, used to come in and have a few pints of harp lager in the bar. And one day they asked me um, if I knew anybody who could cook on their ship. And I've always been one of these people who, like, networks and knows people and communicates and connects people. And they said, oh, can you, can you see if you can find us a chef? And then they went back to the UK for a couple of weeks and came back and said, uh, do you find anybody? I said, no, nah, there's no one around, but I can cook. And they said, okay, well, we'll leave on Sunday. This was Saturday afternoon. And I said, well, can we, can we go Monday? Because I need to, like, cancel my mobile phone contract and my bank account and let people know I'm leaving. So, yeah, I headed off and spent nine months in the Mediterranean um, on this tiny little ship. Um, just firing off flares and just stopping uh, the very busy shipping lanes um, in the Mediterranean from driving over a cable that was surveying for oil. Wait, this is so interesting to explain. So you dropped everything, jumped on a – it wasn't like a super yacht with like super rich people. This was a – what kind of boat was this? It was a 25-meter ex-Norwegian lifeboat. So when the when – the, like in Norway, when the, the, these boats used to go out with a fishing fleet – um, but when they started doing like all the sea rescues with helicopters, they retired a lot of these boats and, um, this guy, Gordon, who actually lived in Alderney, um, he was retired, bought this. He wanted to turn it into a yacht, but I think there was some tax reason or something. He had to have the ship work for a year. And having been in the oil industry, he got the, the ship a little job as a, a chase boat following the seismic survey vessel, just trying to protect the cable with the survey vessel was towing okay interesting so you just followed this big boat around with your boat and you cooked for the the crew yeah i cooked for like four people it's awesome and when you got to shore did you have fun did you get to do cool shit or were you always kind of stuck to the boat it, it was a bit of both um 
you know, we stopped in in, in Gibraltar, um, in Spain, visited Barcelona. Um, and then we were in Malta for quite a while. We spent a good few weeks in Malta. Um, and then I started, after that, I started working like six weeks on and six weeks off. So I used to go back to South Africa or, you know, do something else. But um, the whole thing only lasted about nine months before uh, he, the boat had done its year and he retired the operation. Interesting. So then what did you transition to? <laughs> well, basically, um, when they'd hired me, they'd said, well, you need to nominate like a, a home base. And I said, well, South Africa. And they said, well, no, because we're not flying you back to South Africa every six weeks. It's too expensive. So I said, well, okay, London. And um, so when the whole operation wrapped up, they basically bought me a bus ticket from Portsmouth where we left the boat to London and said, bye. So here I was with my my parachute and my stereo and a suitcase full of clothes on a bus into London. What's up? What do you mean parachute? What, what do you mean parachute? Oh, I used to do a lot of skydiving in South Africa. And um, when I first went traveling, I thought it would be a great idea to take my parachute with me. That's that's amazing. That's really interesting. I didn't know that about you. You're a skydiver, like a license. You can go whenever you want and just jump out of a plane. Yeah, yeah. How did you get into that? Um, in my first year at university, um, I was doing a maths project with a guy who was a really keen skydiver. Um, and then a couple of months later, a group of friends said, oh, we're going to go skydiving for the weekend. Do you want to come with? Um, and you go and do like the first jump course. Um, we, did, we never did t- uh, tandems to start or anything in those days. You just went for a weekend and jumped off a table a few times, did some drills, and then they chucked you out of an airplane. That's wild, dude. So what was your first experience like since you literally just pulled the, pulled the ripcord on your own? Uh, you, you're, you're actually hooked onto the plane, so you only pretend to pull the ripcord for your first five jumps or so. Um, and uh, the parachute just opens anyway. But you still got to land it. Yeah, that's probably the hardest part, right? <laughs> well, that's 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 where, you know, I mean, the only part of skydiving that can kill you is hitting the ground. Um, and, yeah, so I suppose that is the most difficult part. <laughs> <You're> also, <laughs> you also were a dive instructor at some point, right, in Australia. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, so after, um, after being in London for a year, I decided to move to Australia. I'd, I'd met an Australian guy in London, and he'd, um, he'd moved back to Australia and said, hey, well, come pull in. So I, I sold the parachute, um, which then funded the, the scuba diving gear. Um, went and did my scuba diving instructors back in South Africa. There's a beautiful reef off the east coast um, called Alawal Shoal. It's a really quiet place. And went and did uh, yeah, 100 dives and did my dive instructors before I moved to Australia. Wow, beautiful. I mean, yeah, you've led a really interesting, cool life a lot. You've always kind of been moving and just patching things together, and it always seems to work out for you. Like, do you ever ask yourself why? Why Why do you have these lucky opportunities come your way, or you ever wonder? Um, you know, there have been some tough times as well. Um, they just don't tend to, to make it into the stories as much. Um, but some of the... You know, sometimes the, the decisions you make are hard ones and you make the most of it. Um, I, I think, you know, yeah, I'm very lucky. I live in Vietnam now um, and the, the people around here just don't have the opportunities to travel because they can't even get visas to go anywhere. 
So, yes, I'm incredibly privileged from that perspective. You know, I was born in the UK, British passport, grew up in South Africa, South African passport, naturalized in Australia, Australian passport. I can pretty much go anywhere I want. Um, education, you know, I, I was I went through university in South Africa and then whilst I was living in Australia, I did a master's degree. Um, and that's hard work, you know, working full time and studying part time. It, it, it's not a lot of fun. But it opens up so much opportunities later. So sometimes you've just got to put in the hard work and see what happens. Yeah, pre-show sure you mentioned one of those hard times. Um, you got pretty sick, right? And that kind of sent you in a whole new direction after being in Australia for what, like twelve to fifteen years or something like that. Yeah, um, I'd been in been in Australia about just over ten years. Life was great. I was a IT project manager, sales operations manager, working for a big company, I had a big fat salary. Um, that year, I'd run a half marathon up a volcano in New Zealand. Um, it was a friend's birthday. We had a barbecue. I didn't feel so well. No problem. Took a day off work. Got better. The following weekend, I felt really awful. Saturday morning, I had these chest pains, so I took myself up to the hospital and um, they said, oh, we need to figure out what's going on. And I didn't leave the hospital for three and a half weeks. It was just a bacterial infection, a streptococcus that normally would just give you a sore throat, somehow got into my bloodstream. And it's really strange because I was really healthy. Um, you know, I'd just, I'd been running half marathons and it, everything was great. Um, and the next thing I know, I'm flat on my back in hospital for three and a half weeks. I didn't, at the time, I didn't realize how sick I was. My mom kept saying to me, I'll come over from South Africa to Australia and look after you. And I was like, no, I'll be fine. I'll, I'll be out of here in a couple of days and there'll be no point. Um, but yeah, each day led to another day and it was another day in hospital and then my lungs collapsed and yeah, it was it was tough. But um, I think anytime you have an experience that makes you, you know, realize your mortality is a big opportunity to reassess what you're doing with your life and um with a couple of other things that kind of conspired at the same time with the company being sold and things like that I took off and went traveling for a year and um yeah that that's led me to where I am now living in like a beautiful house that we've built in the stunning little village of Fongnya um just down the road from my bar and you know I've, I've been married since then to a wonderful Australian man who I used to work with in Australia. We had a crazy Vietnamese wedding. Um, we invited a whole bunch of our friends from Australia who came over to Vietnam for 10 days and we did jungle treks and bike rides and then had this crazy wedding party, which is traditionally had in a colorful tent just in the middle of a field, very, very loud music, lots of karaoke, lots of warm beer in a glass with ice cubes in it. And a crazy amount of food that, as far as I'm concerned, always has to include a whole chicken that you pull apart with a pair of gloves. <laughs> that sounds so cool. I mean, that's so cool that, yeah, you, you just always kind of taken the opportunities that came your way and bobbed and weaved. And now you find yourself in a little village doing seemingly what you want, when you want to do it. And you make decent money doing that online. Like, that's so cool. Thank you for sharing all those stories. Um, what does the future look like for you and your husband? I mean, is this it? Like, are you going to stay in Fung Ya and grow old together and be buried there or what? <laughs> it's 
someone once once asked Mark um, if he was gonna if he was gonna live in Fengniao forever, and he said no, not forever, only till I die. Um, we've got no plans to go anywhere else. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things that I've learned, and I think one of the things that you can probably tell from from the stories is you roll with the changes. And as when you know, when every every door that closes, another one opens, and sometimes another three or four. Um, we're we're quite settled here. We've we've built a house. Um, we've got a company set up so that we've got our tenure in Vietnam sorted. Um, but you never know when something might pull us in another direction. Um, we've got families. We've got parents. Um, our parents aren't getting any younger, and maybe they'll need us. You know. Both, both my husband and I have siblings, but they have their families and their kids, um, and we don't. So we've got the f- complete flexibility to do anything we want to do, which is really great. That is cool. If you could speak to one of the listeners who happens to be, say, a female entrepreneur just starting out or midway through her process or whatever, she, wherever she may find herself, what kind of words would you say to ke- inspire her to keep going or take that first step? I would say that... Um, Make sure that you're doing something that you love. Make sure that what you're doing is aligned with, with who you are as a person. If you're going to run a business that's going to be about yourself, make sure it's, it's something that you're going to be excited to wake up and do every day. Um, and then just get out there and do it. Find people. Um, find your tribe. Find your people. Um, we can't do this alone. There, there are some people who can very few can find yourself a coach or a group of people or a mastermind group um, and get the support because you don't have to do it on your own. Great advice. Cause yeah, that's for me, Ben, the hugest thing is getting the people around me who are like-minded in the online space. And I'm always surrounded by entrepreneurs cause that's kind of when we live in these places, everyone's kind of an entrepreneur cause we have to be, but yeah, finding the like-mindedness and people doing the same type of business has been hugely helpful for me as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Leslie. If people want to reach out to you, they can find you where at lesliearnold.com. Yep, lesliearnold.com for me. Um, and um, bombcraterbar.com um, if you um, are coming through Vietnam. And um, Bomb Crater Bar is also on Facebook. Um, and um, message us there anytime. That comes to through to me and my husband. So if you want to get in touch, bomb crater bar on facebook and uh, drop us a message if anybody wants any information about traveling around central vietnam around phong nha and the caves drop us a message at bomb crater bar you're awesome leslie we appreciate you love you thank you so much thanks Chapin. it's been such a pleasure thank you leslie so much for coming on and sharing your story with us you are awesome as i said leslie invited me to phong nha so it took a few months for me to get there, but I finally did, and she was an amazing host. Her and her husband hosted me for 10 days in their home and showed me the best time ever. I got to experience Tet with them, and they just really made me feel at home and welcomed me into their lives in Feng Ya, which in the end, I wound up staying a month and really got to know the people of Feng Ya, who are just some of the coolest expats I've ever met doing some really cool, interesting stuff. And if you don't know much about Feng Ya, it has the world's biggest caves that is the main tourist attraction they have there however there are some really interesting other tourist attractions like the duck stop duck stop is owned and operated by a 19 year old vietnamese kid who 
is just a naturally gifted entrepreneur, somebody who has taken his livelihood, what he just does naturally to make ends meet and turned it into one of the coolest tourist attractions I've ever been to. So if you ever have a chance to get to Fung Ya, please check out the duck stuff because they are doing some really cool stuff. And I'm just in awe of how somebody who grew up under the circumstances that they grew up in now have one of the most highly rated TripAdvisor experiences in Fung Ya. So thank you again, Leslie, for exposing me to all these beautiful misfits and rejects that you are surrounded by. I love you all. I look forward to seeing you again in the future sometime. Please remember to hit subscribe on your phone. Please remember to rate and comment on this episode. And if you haven't gotten a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt yet, please head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and pick one up. Remember, I think you all are so very beautiful. I wish you all the best in your own lifestyle design. Please stick around. There's a lot of really cool episodes coming your way. I went to Myanmar, as some of you know. I have some really interesting episodes with people from Myanmar that have been living there for a few years doing also some really cool entrepreneurial things. And then I get to Feng Ya, so you can look forward to hearing about all the different people that I interviewed in Feng Ya. I wish you all the best. Much love. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.